Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. I got a story I got to tell. I told Terry I had to tell this one. The next morning, so we knew the crowd wasn't happy, but the next day I had to go to Lowe's over in North Wilkesboro and to do an appearance over there with them that morning at their offices. And uh, so I stopped at Hardy's on the way back to get me a sandwich, and I walked in, and there was a line. And this little old lady, I never will forget it, she came up to me and she said, you're Richard Childress, aren't you? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, you're the dirtiest car owner in NASCAR, and you have the dirtiest race driver. Terry Labonte is the finest man out there and the best race driver. You should be ashamed of yourself. That's a true story. Never will forget that young lady. Yeah, it might have been my aunt. I don't know. Greetings. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan, back with another narrative episode of the pod. This one commemorating the 20th anniversary of one of the most memorable finishes seen in NASCAR, certainly at Bristol Motor Speedway. The August 28, 1999 race at the high-banked half-mile in Thunder Valley was the 73rd victory of Dale Earnhardt's illustrious career. It was his last victory on a short track. It was his last of nine wins at Bristol, which also was where he earned the first victory of his cup career on April 1, 1979. This was one of the seven-time champion's favorite stock car tracks, and in part because it was synonymous with his reputation for rough-and-tumble, hardscrabble racing. Bristol's slogan once was, Race in the way it ought to be, which essentially translates to, Lead or get out of the way. And if you don't, I'll use my fenders to knock you aside. At Bristol, that's known as the bump and run, and it was a cornerstone of racing there in the 1990s. It's also the essence of what made Earnhardt the intimidator, the chrome horn that helped carry him to the front in many of his victories. And so it's fitting that the most famous bump and one in Bristol history happened with the number three Chevrolet on the final lap of that night 20 years ago. He's going to catch him, can he pass him? <laughs> and Labonte inside of Earnhardt, he taps him, going into the third corner, he gets way down on the eighth of the track, coming to the white flag, there's a leader change, and Labonte takes the lead. Oh, and Earnhardt spins him out. Oh, man. And Tony Stewart is involved in the crash, as is Mark Martin, Terry, or Stoney Marlin, and several others. Dale Earnhardt takes the checkered flag. 
will be talk about this one for a long time. Taylor Hart is in victory lane. Climbs out with his ninth victory at Bristol. And Dale, that's what Bristol's all about. Take us to those last couple laps. Terry got into me in the middle of three and four, and I was going to get back to him and just rattle him. I wasn't going to wreck him, but I got to him and he turned him around. So didn't mean to really turn around, I meant to rattle his cage, though. Earnhardt might have meant only to rattle Labonte's cage. But what he really did was send an 800 horsepower earthquake rumbling through NASCAR Nation the same way he often had during an iconic career partly defined by his ability to command center stage unlike any other superstar. But this was different. This was the night the Intimidator stoked the emotions of every single person who watched him root Terry Labonte out of first place just a few turns from the checkered flag. This was the night that Dale Earnhardt, by many accounts the most popular and polarizing driver in the history of NASCAR, was cheered and booed at ear-splitting volumes rarely heard at any racetrack or in any living room. If you were there that night, or I'm sure if you were watching on television, you had kind of the same reaction that was just, in part, you're stunned. Some people were mad. There was some cheering, but it was the, the loudest moment in sports, I think, by a group of fans. It was absolutely amazing. It's one of the most memorable moments in all sports, and certainly in NASCAR. That was longtime racetrack executive Marcus Smith describing the race's transcendence in a recent event organized by Bristol Motor Speedway at the NASCAR Hall of Fame. That's one of many voices you'll hear during this episode, which will weave together a tapestry of what transpired on a magical night for NASCAR. From the viewpoints of the main characters on the track, and the behind-the-scenes players in the pits, the scoring tower, the announcer's booth, and victory lane, we'll be taking a look at everything that happened around the moment that Dale spun Terry, and the many unbelievable memories and questions it prompted. Why were even the pro-Earnhardt sections of the crowd booing the Intimidator? What was the scene as 140,000 people hung around long after the race was over? Did NASCAR ever consider penalizing the winner of the race? What did the ending mean to the careers of Dale Earnhardt and Terry Labonte? And how did it resonate for Bristol Motor Speedway and all those years since? But it all starts with a fantastic finish. And really, it started long before that, as explained by Kevin Triplett, NASCAR's director of operations at the time, who was among the half-dozen officials in the Bristol scoring tower that night. You're in the tower, yeah. August 28th, 1999. What are your memories well, of that night? A lot of things, really. And I think that happens a lot with, with an event that sticks in people's minds. A lot of times, the lightning bolt that hits is what everybody remembers. And obviously, the lightning bolt in this situation was you know, the lap 500 touch of the three car on the, on Terry Labonte and, and, and Terry spinning. And, but there was so much else that went in to get to that point, to get to one of these 
lightning bolt moments, a lot of other things have to happen. There are many places you could begin this story before the wreck that everyone remembers. There's the final caution, during which Daryl Waltrip accidentally knocked Terry Labonte from the lead. There's the reason for that caution, an engine failure for Labonte's younger brother Bobby, that put fluid on the track and caused Jeremy Mayfield to spin. There's Earnhardt's poor 26th place qualifying effort a day earlier, that put him in a backstretch pit stall, and ultimately on the worn tires he was forced to use to try to hold off Terry Labonte. But the place truly to start is the August 26, 1995 race at Bristol, which Terry Labonte won with a wrecked Chevy after being bumped across the finish line by Dale Earnhardt. He'll get the white flag this time around. There's Earnhardt lurking in second position off of corner four. Terry Labonte gets the white flag, but still has this traffic to contend with. Now let's see. They're down to four or five car lengths. And a slow car right then. Earnhardt is battling his back up. Let's see what strategy he pulls. No, Labonte is sideways, but wins the race. Crashes, and he wins anyway. How about that? Whoa! Labonte crossed the line, sideways, took the checkered flag, hit the wall, and still comes out the winner of the Goodies 500 over Dale Earnhardt. That wasn't finished, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, I'll tell you, I just, our Kellogg Chevy ran great all night there, and uh, Dale caught me, gave me a little shot in the back there, and I just stood in the gas, and uh, I think I used up a race car, but we'd get another one. <laughs> I think I ran all night long, didn't put a scratch in until the end, but then we wiped it out, but that's the way it goes, we won. Daryl Waltrip and Terry Labonte actually joked about it during the 1999 Bristol pre-race show. Tell me your fondest memory of Bristol. Oh gosh, I don't know. That's probably one of the most exciting times here at Bristol was we won the race there kind of uh, sideways going across the line there. Uh, but somebody got to the back of us. But, uh, now, why, why do you say somebody? I mean, do you, would you be more specific? Our, bu our buddy Dale. <laughs> that was probably the most exciting race that I can remember here that I've run. And that was the backdrop as the green flag fell on another 500 laps at Bristol four years later. Under a full moon Saturday night, and with all of the hype, pageantry, and wonder that has come to be expected with one of the marquee events on the Cup schedule. Hi everyone, well with all due respect to all their other racetracks that run night events, this Benny is one of the biggest nights of the year in all of motorsports. This definitely is the most exciting event we have all year long. You just gotta survive here, I mean, uh... As soon as the sun goes down, everybody, uh, everybody's demons seem to come out for some reasons. Gentlemen, start your engines! The race began with rookie Tony Stewart on the pole position and a serious threat for the first victory of what would become a Hall of Fame career. Smoke led 225 of the first 251 laps, but Stewart wouldn't lead again after the midpoint of 500 laps, as the second half of the race became a duel between the two stars who had battled for the win there four years earlier. Labonte took his first lead on lap 300, and over the last 200 laps, he and Earnhardt traded first place seven times. Triplett recalled a sense of anticipation and inevitability building. It came down to Dale and Terry. It, it's a, it was similar to a, a, a really, really close basketball game where the lead gets swapped a lot. Terry would take it for a while, and then Dale would take it for a while, and, and 
there are all of these other things that go on in a race at Bristol, but they had kind of settled in that th- this was going to be between the two of them. Earnhardt took his first lead on lap 380, just 20 laps after his race seemed to be over from contact with teammate Mike Skinner. Earnhardt goes to the inside of his teammate Mike Skinner and gives him a kiss. They They've been a little bit of contact there. That might have knocked up the hook. We see some sparks coming up from under the three cars. John, what's going on? What was going on was Earnhardt finally might have roughed up enough competitors to get the handling right on his car. A concept that Larry McReynolds had gotten to know while working with Earnhardt as the number three crew chief in 1997-98. I think it just took him back to his roots and where you could root and gouge and beat and bang. I, I remember uh, one of the races that I was actually working with him. We got ready to go out for final practice and uh, he was just about to back out. And I said, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. And, and I said, just sit tight a second. I went digging through the toolbox. He said, what are you looking for? I said, a hammer. He, what are you going to do with the hammer? I said, I'm going to go ahead and just beat the front end off of it because I know that's what I'm going to have to tune to all night, probably after about lap 10 or 15, because I know you're going to beat the nose off and then complain about the way the car is driving. So, uh, yeah, he, he definitely loved that little old half-mile racetrack. And at least until much later in the evening, the fans loved roaring with cheers as he took the lead. Here he goes on the outside, Mike. And everybody, 141,000 people all stand up. Every one of them. Earnhardt has the lead. On lap 380, Dale Earnhardt passes Terry Labonte and takes over the front spot. Because his pit stall was on the backstretch, a huge disadvantage due to the extra time under pace car speed, Earnhardt fell out of the lead under caution on his final pit stop. But his pit crew held him in third place behind Terry Labonte and Jeff Gordon. And the Intimidator was doing the rest. The time by Earnhardt was faster than the front two cars. About a mile per hour faster. And Earnhardt's on the outside of Jeff Gordon, one and two for that second front, and the crowd goes nuts. Bonnie reclaimed the lead on lap 439 and began to pull away for the first time over the next 50 laps, building a steady half-second lead over Earnhardt. 20 or 30 to go. Terry, he has it firmly in hand. We all know that at Bristol, especially at night, it firmly in hand is not necessarily firmly in hand. And so with 10 laps remaining, Bobby Labonte's engine failure caused Jeremy Mayfield to spin. From the lead, Terry Labonte slowed for the caution, and then... Disaster. Jeremy Mayfield has crashed. And Tara Labonte, the leader, is spinning. And Dale Earnhardt takes the lead. What happened? And the race of this can't be happening. This cannot be happening. Darrell Waltrip had accidentally turned Terry Labonte from the lead while scrambling to try to get back on the lead lap during an era in which NASCAR still allowed racing back to the yellow. In his delightful deadpan that cut like a knife, a seething Labonte refused to even identify Waltrip by name as the culprit for the spin. Hell, uh, uh, 66, what's his name? 20 years later, Andy Graves, the number five crew chief that night, 
Anne Labonte can laugh about it now. Sort of. Uh, oh, what's-his-name was driving the 66 car then. I, I think really, it was Daryl. Daryl said yeah. he sure was glad Dale spun me out because he, otherwise he would have been the one blamed for it. But <laughs> when the caution came out, you raced back to the caution, you know, and uh, it was kind of a gentleman's agreement. You really didn't do that unless you were trying to unlap yourself or try to keep somebody lapped down. And, and I remember I was lapping Brett Bodine, so I just eased up out of the gas a little bit instead of, you know, putting him a lap down. And, and Daryl ran into the back of me and turned us around. So we're sitting there backwards, and I thought, this is wonderful. But all hope wasn't lost. After flat-spotting his tires in the spin, Labonte had to pit. Though there would be only five green flag laps remaining after the last restart, there were only seven cars on the lead lap. And Labonte would restart fifth, as the first car on four fresh tires. Meanwhile, Earnhardt wanted to pit from the lead, but was waved off by his team because of the backstretch pit stall. Dale Earnhardt, your leader, did not come in and pit. He wanted to come and take on four tires. They told him, Dale... You are the seven-time NASCAR Winston Cup champion. You can do it. Unbelievably, though, it was Labonte who nearly pulled off the win. In, in those five laps of green, for Terry to get back to Dale and get underneath him um, and, and clear him was pretty amazing. So, you know, Terry was on a mission that night for sure. Five laps to go at Bristol Motor Speedway in the Goodies Headache Counter 500. It's Earnhardt, Stewart, Gordon, Martin, and Terry Labonte. The top five. Is Dale Earnhardt going to win this thing? Looks that way. Terry Labonte on the inside of Mark Martin. He goes by. He's got four new tires. And here comes Labonte by Gordon. He's, boy, he's moving. He can get by Stewart, which it looks like he will. Man, oh man, look at Labonte go. He's got second, and they're coming up on two laps to go. He's going to catch him. Can he pass him? This might be deja vu all over again, but in reverse. <laughs> and Labonte inside of Earnhardt. He taps him. Going into the third quarter, he gets way down on the apron of the track. Coming to the white flag, there's a leader change, and Labonte takes the lead. That should have brought Graves unbridled joy. But it was mostly a sense of dread from when your driver takes the lead on Dale Earnhardt a few corners too early. When uh, they came off of turn four to get the white flag, and, uh, and I saw Terry underneath him, for whatever reason, I, I distinctly remember thinking, this just is not going to end well. Um, <laughs> you know, you, usually you, th you think when you're in that position, you're like, okay, here we go, we, we've got it. But I, I just, I had this weird gut feeling. And, and unfortunately, and you know, where we were pitted, I had a clear shot to see Terry drive into turn one. And un unfortunately, the car bottomed out. And, you know, if you watch the replay, Sparks came out, which shot Terry up the track just enough that that's how Dale was able to, to really plan him in, in the left rear corner. So, but, uh, yeah, I'd, you know, I, of course we were, we were upset, but uh, I think my first reaction was, yep, I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> in as nonplussed and unflustered an interview ever given by a driver spun from the lead with a lap to go, Labonte captured the moment in his typically plain-spoken and understated style. Well, we were, our car was awesome there, and, uh, you know, the flag came out, and, I'll, uh, uh, it's 66, what's his name, turned me around down there, and I don't know, what do you, I mean, I mean, you know, there was oil in the track, and the caution was out, and just wrecked me, and so then we got new tires, came back out, and I got wrecked again, so it wasn't my night.
you got the four fresh tires, you came out, you were very quick, you passed a number of cars, you passed the three, then walk us from that stage to the end of the race. Well, I passed him down the front straight away, and he, he hit me in the corner down there in one and two and turned me around. That's about it. Obviously, he said he planned to get up to you, had no intention of taking you out. He never has any intention of taking anybody out. It just happens that way. It was a rather succinct summation of everything that had happened in the last 20 minutes and the confluence of so many events that set up that final lap. You know, Terry Labonte's, you know, quiet guys, nice, you know, everybody kind of liked him, and you're thinking, all right, this is going to be a good win for Terry. And then you think it goes up in vapor, you know, because he spins, and then all of a sudden he pits and gets four tires and is just passing everybody like they're sitting still. None of that would happen if he hadn't gotten the four tires. Well, he wouldn't have gotten the four tires if – if he hadn't a spun. So, yeah. I mean, that's why all of these <laughs> things have to happen. Everybody remembers the last lap. But all of these other parts had to happen to create that last lap. And these two players had a little bit of a history at this track in the night race from four years earlier. So here, fast forward four years later, same two cars, same two drivers. In this day and time, it seems hard to believe, but same sponsors still kind of painted the same you're looking at something that you had just seen four years earlier, almost yeah. this situation. You know, I think ultimately the the crowd here got to be about 160,000. At that time, it was easily more than 140, and every seat was full, and no seat at this point in the race was being used. Everybody's standing up. I think we were standing up in the tower, you know, because we're kind of looking like, okay, what's getting ready to happen here? Ask anyone at Bristol Motor Speedway what they remember most about August 28, 1999, and the answer is simple and universal. The crowd. This is what Bristol Motor Speedway sounds like, with 40 cars rumbling around its concrete surface. It's loud. As Tony Stewart once infamously described, it's like being inside an aluminum trash can with all your buddies banging on it with ball-peen hammers. That's loud. But on this night at Bristol, the fans were louder than the engines. Running to interview Earnhardt in Victory Lane, pit reporter Dr. Jerry Punch realized it instantly. You know, at the end of a race, you've been in a short track, and for three hours, the engines are roaring, Thunder Valley, Bristol Motor Speedway, and it gets quiet when the race is over. And the guy in Victory Lane cuts his engine off, everyone shuts their engines down, it gets nice and quiet. It's, like, it's almost eerie. Well, that didn't happen that night. Earnhardt comes in, all the sparklers go off, he shuts the engine off, and it got loud. It got very, very loud. In all my years of doing victory lanes, the one thing about victory lane is that when the race is over and the engines are shut off, it gets quiet. It didn't happen that night. Earnhardt pulls in, and you can see his eyes because suddenly it got louder. There were 140,000 people in the stands that night, and every one of them was passing an opinion one way or the other, and it was loud. 
with all the engines shut off. It might be the only time I can remember when the actual incident happened on the last lap that the crowd noise drowned out the race cars. The thing that stands out the loudest is the crowd was so loud that night. I think uh, there was a lot of cheering, a lot of booing, and uh, a lot of upset people, a lot of happy people. The noise was deafening even inside the cockpits for drivers coasting around through their cool-down laps. Elliot Sadler finished 74 laps down in 35th place, but he never will forget his rookie season at Bristol Motor Speedway. So I remember it like yesterday. What I remember the most is two things. One, Bristol has always done a great job of having the big video screen when they do interviews and stuff for the fans and be a part of the interviews after the race and stuff like that. And I just remember how loud the fans were booing and, and all of that. There half of them cheering, half of them booing when Earnhardt was giving his uh, explanation and all the stuff on a victory lane with Charlie Bonnie and all that, how loud that place was after the race. It's probably as loud as I ever, uh, that it's ever been at any racetrack I've ever been to. And then people were throwing things. But the fans and the fans were throwing things that not very happy about the outcome of that race. So that, that's what I remember about it, was how loud it was, the emotion that was in that stadium uh, after that race. But I just remember the crowd was going great. Uh, and, and reacting to everything that was going on there at the screen. It was the loudest race I've ever been, post race I've ever been a part of. It was, it was absolutely amazing. So much energy in that state. George Shaw has been coming to Bristol Motor Speedway for the past 23 years from his home near Chattanooga, Tennessee. He has sat in turn one, just past the pits, from the moment that the grandstand section opened. I got to credit my wife. She heard on the radio that they were building new seats. So about Two milliseconds later, I called Bristol and said, I want <laughs> some of those seats and got them. Shaw, who has been attending NASCAR Cup races since 1964, was glad he had those seats on August 28, 1999. I guess the one thing I remember the most, even Earnhardt fans were booing Earnhardt that night, <laughs> which kind of amazed me because he got booed a lot anyway, but, but for his own fans, some of them to be booing him was something I'd never experienced before. So people in your section wearing Earnhardt three gear around you you saw them booing. Oh, yeah. After my, this happened. One of my best friends was sitting in the row right in front of me, and he's a diehard Earnhardt fan. He's probably got 300 Earnhardt diecasts and everything. He was booing them, <laughs> which absolutely shocked me. <laughs> Kevin Triplett had done media relations for Earnhardt before joining NASCAR. From inside the scoring tower, Triplett watched in stunned silence with a handful of other executives and race officials. One of his primary thoughts was how would they wade through such a sea of chaos? The only way back to the infield from the tower was through the grandstands. As loud as it was in the grandstands on the other side of that glass, what I think I remember from it is a bit of silence from the rest of us just standing there like, what just happened? <laughs> and on the other side of the glass, it was anything but silence. I mean, this place, right? you know, I, I've been – I've been in and around racing and watching races since 80, 86, 87. And I've never heard a combination of cheers and, and, and boos and jeers that was that loud at one time in my life. I, and I don't remember ever hearing Earnhardt getting booed that loud. Now, it wasn't exclusive. There were there were cheers. There were people, you know, with the three hats and the black hats and, the you know, waving. and But... I had never heard, you know, before he even got back around on his cool-down lap. It was crazy. I mean, yeah. there were people, 
I guess the easiest way to explain it was sheer emotion. Regardless of whether people were happy he won or mad, everybody, and I don't usually like uh, absolutes like always and never and everybody, but I think everybody in the grandstands was yelling something, whether it was positive or negative or whatever. (laughs) In victory lane, David McGee was about to interview Earnhardt for the track PA system. The run of show in victory lane was that Earnhardt would be interviewed first by ESPN, then by the Performance Racing Network, and then by McGee. Though Earnhardt's answers were the same, the fan reaction changed with each recitation. My biggest recollection of that night was the crowd. Because when when the incident happened, 140,000 people or whatever we had capacity at that time, most of them were cheering. But there was you could hear the boos. I mean, there was, it, was, it was a, I don't know, 70, 30, 60, 40, whatever. And then as the events wore on over the next few minutes, the booing got louder. And, I mean, this, this was all – Earnhardt was always super popular at this racetrack. And to hear that kind of booing for Dale Earnhardt here was – that was remarkable. So he comes to victory lane, and he basically said the same thing to all three of us. I didn't mean to – I mean, didn't want to wreck him. I just wanted to rattle his cage. And so the, the crowd really starts booing when they hear it. And then it was my turn, so I go up and I ask the same stupid question. And by now, the crowd is really into it. And he's, he says it again. I, I didn't mean to wreck him. I meant to rattle his cage. And the, the crescendo of booze now is like 70-30 against Earnhardt. And, and he's kind of – you could see he was kind of looking around like, wow, is this really – did I make people that mad? You could, you could see the look on his face. Terry got into me in the middle of three and four, and I was going to get back to him and just rattle him. I wasn't going to wreck him, but – I got to him and he turned him around. So didn't mean to really turn around. I meant to rattle his cage over. I've interviewed Earnhardt probably for half, if not more, of his 76 wins, and I've never seen the look on his face that I saw. Normally, when he comes into victory lane, you know, he pulls that helmet off, steering wheel off. He's brushing that big bushy mustache and smiling ear to ear. He sort of looked around to me, and then looked over at the sparks, and then you could hear, in somewhat of a, a look of bewilderment, like, "Wait a minute, uh, this is this is this is pretty serious." And I think he even knew he wanted to apologize before I could even get the first question out because in the, in the answer to his first question as he's climbing out of the car, he said, just meant to pay him back for what for a bump over in turn three and rattle him a little bit. And then later on in his second answer, he talked about, I didn't mean to wreck him, but it's meant to rattle his cage. So he was already preparing to say, I'm sorry, because you could hear the fans. And the more he talked, the louder they got. For those such as Triplett, who knew Earnhardt well, it was a jarring moment. This was NASCAR's John Wayne but without the gunslinger swagger that made him the working man's hero. But the thing that struck me, I've watched his post-race interview mm-hmm. over the years several times, and it was different than any other thing that I saw him do. First of all, he and Terry were friends. They went hunting together. Uh, they spent time together. Dale genuinely liked Terry, and I think Terry genuinely liked Dale. So, A, I think that bothered him a little bit, which some people may say nothing bothered Dale Earnhardt. Well, I... I don't know, just watching what I see, I think he was a little bothered. <laughs> and, and he yeah. – and it's funny, that instance in a, in a very quick composite was a nutshell of, of their two nicknames. You know, I always think, you know, we don't have enough great nicknames anymore. You know, Pistol Pete Maravich and all these great – but the Intimidator and the Iceman. And if you look at the way they react, I mean, what Dale did was an intimidating sort of thing, and the way Terry handled it was very ice cold and very yeah. he was very calm. More than 20 minutes after the checkered flag, the Iceman might have been the calmest person at Bristol. 
The emotions weren't dissipating, so the crowd wasn't dispersing. Fans continued to make noise as if the last lap of the race were being incessantly replayed in real life. Because I remember being up in the press box, it seemed like 15 minutes later, 20 minutes later, I was just still pounding on the keyboard, and all of a sudden I heard all this noise again, and I looked up, and they were replaying the last lap on the race, and when it came to the bump, all the fans were booing, and like I said, it's like, I think 10, 15, 20 minutes later, three-fourths of the stands were still full. Nobody wanted to leave. McGee said Bristol eventually took on de facto measures of crowd control. My other vivid memory that night is nobody left. I mean, we're 10 minutes after the race is over, but usually the crowd just, you know, they're flying out the gate. Everybody stayed. Everybody stayed. I don't know what they were waiting for. I don't know if they thought there was going to be a big fist fight, or I don't know what they were waiting on, but they were waiting. And then they finally... Terry Labonte finally came out of the holler and, and talked to PRN. And and he made a comment, something to the effect of, well, he never means to wreck anybody, but he wrecked me anyway. And the crowd just is losing their mind at this point. And Jeff Bird, who was our general manager at the time, we're, we're standing in victory lane and, and we're kind of taking in all this and, you know, this scene. And Jeff's like, turn that off. we we got to get these people out of here. People are way too upset right now. And so I, I go and find our sound guy who's working in Victory Lane, and I'm like, cut it. Just cut everything off. Silence. And then the crowd starts to dissipate, and everybody starts to leave. But up to that point, I mean, the energy was just, I don't know. It was, it was a full moon night. Yeah. I mean, you know. In the turn one grandstands, George Shaw thought fans seemed to be staying for round two of Earnhardt versus Labonte literally and figuratively. I think part of that was they were looking to see what Terry, if Terry's going to try to retaliate or something, you know, fight in the pits or something like that. That was part of racing back then, not just at Bristol, but a lot of the tracks. With tempers running high enough to ignite fisticuffs, Childress told the members of the number three team to remove their telltale Goodwrench emblazoned uniforms, and thus any connection to Earnhardt, before exiting the track. Yeah, we had our concerns because there was people that were really upset and I, I put on a, a Harley Davis t-shirt when I left and I, I actually wear it up wore it up to the press box with Dale so uh, yeah there were some people that were upset. Such as the elderly woman in line at the Hardee's in North Wilkesboro that Childress ran into the next day. Told me I was the dirtiest car owner that had ever been in NASCAR and I had the dirtiest driver that had ever been in there. I thought she was going to whip up on me right there in Hardee's. Maybe she and others would have been satisfied if there had been punishment for Earnhardt. As the late Charlotte Observer reporter David Poole wrote, NASCAR officials effectively swallowed their whistles on the number three, though there was at least some expectation that a call against Earnhardt might be coming. In a satellite feed of the ESPN broadcast, play-by-play announcer Bob Jenkins and his boothmates began discussing during a break if Earnhardt's win might be overturned. And Jenkins told an audience of millions that NASCAR was reviewing videotape of the spin. Quite a night here at Bristol Motor Speedway. It resulted in Dale Earnhardt going to victory lane. That's the Goodies Headache Powder 500 at Bristol Motor Speedway. We'll have more from here in a moment. Nothing they can do. Will they? Huh? I took it away from, who was it? That's Sears Point. Sears Point, Davey Allison won it. Who did they take it away from? Huh? 
Ricky Rudd. Rudd. Yep, I remember. Yeah. I don't know. I'm glad I don't have to make those. No decisions. kidding. Well, I don't think about anybody left yet. a very controversial finish to the Goodies Headache Powder 500 here at Bristol with Dale Earnhardt and Terry Labonte having contact on the last lap. Labonte spins, Earnhardt wins the race. NASCAR is looking at the videotape to uh, determine what, if anything, will happen, but there is the very wrecked car of Terry Labonte. The second and third place finishers in the race had vested reasons in how NASCAR might adjudicate the ending. Jimmy Spencer who epitomized hard short track racing as Mr. Excitement, was lobbying for a penalty to Earnhardt that would make him the winner. And Ricky Rudd had a win taken from him for a last lap dumping of Davey Allison at Sonoma in 1991. I'm trying to file a three second, even a one second penalty to Earnhardt, you know, it'd be really <laughs> nice, you know. Earnhardt pretty much just took Terry out, and no other way to put it, but uh, you know, I was the last lap. Yeah, what happened, we won the race and came across the finish line first, but a similar incident, and uh, we were taking away, the victory was taken away, we finished second, so Jimmy's campaigning to get, uh, get the win. So how close did NASCAR come to nullifying Earnhardt's win? Triplett confirms the video was reviewed, but there was no immediate discussion of stripping the win, nor was there a likelihood of it happening in those confines. Do you remember in the tower, was there any thought of penalizing him? No, I, I don't remember uh, there being any. We watched the replay, and... Last lap, turn two at Bristol, turn, any turn at Bristol. How do you make that decision of what in that split second was going through somebody's minds? Now, there have been times where I've been in the tower and it was fairly easy because I, there will be one driver who shall remain nameless, but I think it was the last race he ever wore white gloves <laughs> because we noticed on the replay there was a very yeah. distinct turn yeah. of the white gloves, and I don't think he ever wore white gloves after that. But, <laughs> but we were able to tell there was a very distinct movement of the steering wheel into the car side, so that was a much easier decision to make. We felt pretty confident that there was intent there. Yeah. But this one, and because of the emotion and because of the reaction, I don't think we were prepared to do anything at that point anyway. I think it was, we're going to look at this, we're going to review this, we're going to take a look at it. And, because you don't want to add, regardless of you know, whether they were booing or cheering, you don't want to add fuel to that fire yeah. at that point. You, if you're yeah. going to make a decision, it needs to be with all your faculties about you where it's not on emotion, it's on you know, what you have in front of you. Anything that would have occurred that night would have been on emotion, uh, or at least had a major factor in it because yeah. that was an emotional night. The emotions had calmed down when the NASCAR contingent eventually reached their mobile office hauler in the infield. The media was told that the finish would remain under review, and NASCAR held a series of post-race meetings that included team owner Richard Childress. It was behind NASCAR hauler. Mike Hilton or Gary Nelson had already come out and kind of said, listen, we're going to look at this. And, and so it had kind of calmed down a little bit, and I was standing there around a stack of tires and Richard was standing there, and we were just kind of... And we weren't even really talking much about what happened. I think we were both not wanting to. Yeah. You know, it's just... Because I think at that point, really, you're still... You were in this window of time where you you were part of something that 
you knew was going to be talked about for a really long time, but you still didn't really know what to say at that moment, so you just kind of stood there, Yeah, you know, yeah. sort of thing. I mean, there are very few moments in time where when we are going through it, we know it is monumental or it's going to be talked about for a long time, and that was one of those times. That yeah. was one of those few times where you knew, wow, this one – this one's, gonna be, this one's going to be discussed yeah. for a while. <laughs> yeah. But in that moment, you didn't really know what to say, so you're just kind of standing there. Yeah. Triplett's wife broke the tension with a joke about a long-delayed getaway they'd been planning for that week. She walked over toward me, and Richard saw her. And he looked, and he said, I'm not in trouble with your husband, Emma. And she said, if this messes up our vacation, you're in trouble with me. <laughs> <laughs> Triplett and his wife still went on their three-day trip to the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. But it didn't go entirely uninterrupted, as NASCAR debated over the course of many conference calls whether to punish Earnhardt for spinning Labonte. You know, some of the folks were based in Daytona, some of the folks were in Charlotte, some of the, so we were just all on the phone talking about. I didn't even have a cell signal. Coverage was a little spotty, so I'm standing in this phone booth in front of this subway. There was a a Texaco garage, and I'm sure the guys in that garage thought, what is this guy doing? Because I was in there, I was in that phone booth for two hours. What we had to decide was, what do we think we know, or what no, what did we know happen? How does that compare to any other racing incident on the last lap coming to the checker flag that any number of us have seen yeah. over the course of years? And we decided, you know, there's no there there, or yeah. at least there's not enough to to do anything, and I think there was a reaction to that. I think some people were disappointed uh, that that you know there wasn't a fine or there wasn't. A, I I don't remember. Again, it's been twenty years. I don't ever remember us ever discussing, you know, the win not being a, a good win. I think it was more of okay, is there a fine? Is there you probation? Know, is, yeah, is there yeah some yeah. sort of probation? Yeah. Do we? Yeah. You know that sort of thing. I don't. I don't remember us ever discussing that the win being part of the of the equation. I yeah. think it was. If there is a penalty, what is it? The thing about the contact between Earnhardt and Labonte is there really wasn't that much. Compare it now with Joey Logano's final corner shove of Martin Truex Jr. to win at Martinsville Speedway, a move deemed completely legal by NASCAR. It's hard to see how Earnhardt would have merited a penalty. What Earnhardt did wasn't that much unlike what Jeff Gordon would do to Rusty Wallace in the same race three years later, and what countless other drivers have done over the years to gain positions at Bristol, particularly when the fastest groove was on the bottom. So why was Earnhardt booed so vociferously in this instance? McGee, who has seen more than 100 races at Bristol, remains befuddled. What he did was essentially what you're supposed to do to win races or pass people here. Why do you think people reacted that way? You know, that's a great question. And, and I've, I've wondered that myself because, I mean, that is the quintessential Bristol moment. And, and you, you bump somebody out of the way and you go to victory lane. And it's not like that Earnhardt had not tapped other people before. Maybe, I don't know, maybe people just felt like that, that Terry needed a break since he got spun a few laps before that. Maybe they felt like it was unfair that he got spun twice out of the lead. Shaw says in talking to the Earnhardt fans around him, that it was the circumstances involving Labonte more so than what Earnhardt had done. I just think it had been a while since Terry had won. And when Terry here at Earnhardt, he just kind of nudged him in the left rear and just kind of yeah. got him a little loose and passed him. And when Earnhardt hit Terry, it, I mean, it looked so intentional. It wasn't even funny. And it, I'm sure it was, but that's racing at Bristol. That's part of it. I don't know. But, that you know, it shocked me that 
to hear Earnhardt fans booing Dale. You know, that's that's racing, right? I mean, oh, b- bump Bristol, and run at Bristol, right? At yeah. Bristol, that's what it was famous for. It still yeah. is to some extent. When Terry hit Dale, it was more of a true bump and run. He just upset the car just enough yeah. to be able to get under him. And I don't think Dale did it intentionally necessarily, but I think he – because the way he was coming off the corner and Terry was kind of coming up a little bit, just the way they caught each other, made it look probably worse than it was. Indeed, Earnhardt continually professed his innocence in virtually every interview he did long after the race. No, I was just racing. I, you know, like I said, I didn't, for, for any means, to go down there to spend Terry Labonte out. I went down there to, to get back to him and, and rattle him and to get under him, you know, and try to race him. And I knew he had better tires than I did. And, uh, I just wanted to get back on him and race him back around and uh, maybe try to get, uh, you know, just uh, a nose to him. And those who knew him best and worked with him believed him. And I never talked to Dell about it. I never asked him about it. I never asked him what was going through his mind because that's, as the competitor, that's up to him. And they have, these drivers have to make split-second decisions. I met very few people in my life who were as competitive and wanted to win as much as Dell Earnhardt. But I think even that went a little bit further than he wanted to go. Because he said at least two and maybe three times, I just wanted to rattle him. I just wanted to get right. to him. I just wanted to rattle his cage. I just wanted... And he just kept saying those sorts of things over and over. Because, you know, there were times that Dale admitted to wrecking people. Yeah, I wrecked him. You know, and yeah. he didn't do that here. Larry McReynolds saw Earnhardt the following Monday morning at the airport before they flew to a test session for Richard Childress Racing. I said, well, that was quite a finish. And he says, I know nobody's ever going to buy my story. But he said, I promise you, Larry, I did not want the outcome to be as it was. He said, now, I'm not going to go give the trophy back. I can promise you that. But he said, I really did not plan on wrecking that man. I just wanted to kind of root him up out of the way and go on and try to win the race. He said, I I just, but I, I should have known you get against somebody just a little bit at that place that you're going to spin them out. And he really... He really, I think, was sincere in what he was saying, but I promise you, as he said, he wasn't going to give that trophy back either. It was one of the last great moments in an iconic career. Before being killed in a crash on the last lap of the 2001 Daytona 500, Earnhardt would win three more times, at Talladega later that year and at Atlanta in Talladega in 2000. The 76th and final win, when Earnhardt went from 18th to 1st in the last five laps at Talladega, would be remembered as one of his most indelible. And Earnhardt has gone for the lead, and listen to this crowd of 170,000 strong. But the Bristol victory also holds a special spot because it was the final embodiment of the Intimidator. And it came when he seemed he would never reclaim the form of his seven championship glory. August 28, 1999 was Earnhardt's first victory outside Daytona and Talladega in more than three years and it answered many questions about his competitiveness. Here's Earnhardt, he's 48 years old. He's not won a short track race since 1995 at Martinsville. He's not won a non-restrictor play race since 1996. All he's winning are plate races, and the rumblings among some of the fans are that maybe maybe his skill level, maybe his talent is fading and that he can only win on those plate tracks where it's all about momentum and intimidation. He's got this son, Dale Earnhardt Jr., that's just won the Bush Series title, getting ready to make his step into the Premier Series. 
maybe he's going to come on and Earnhardt's going to retire. Well, some of the fans are saying that. Some of the papers, the, the, the Winston Cup scenes back then, the USA Todays are talking, maybe that's what's happening. Maybe he's getting ready to step away. Well, the rumblings. Is he, has he lost the edge? Can he still be aggressive? Can he be the old Earnhardt? But he showed him he had no desire to retire. He showed him he was the Earnhardt of old. For Labonte, Bristol was mostly just another disappointment in what Andy Graves remembers as a horrible season. The first of four straight outside the top ten in points toward the end of the career for one of NASCAR's most consistent drivers. It was really tough. It pretty much ruined an already bad season uh, in, in a lot of ways. I've never watched the whole race back, to be totally honest with you. Yeah, I know it's, it's become one of the iconic finishes in the sport. I appreciate all the history with NASCAR, but I kind of wish that we were on the winning end of that one. Labonte remains nonchalant about it 20 years later, especially given that he attempted an instant retaliation right after Earnhardt's win and yet he failed. It's always one of my favorite tracks. I love the crowd. I loved everything about Bristol, and I still do. It's one of my favorite races to watch, but, uh, you know, it was kind of one of those deals. We didn't come out on top that night, and uh, but, hey, it's, it's just how things happen, and, you know, it doesn't take long. You get over it, you move on, and just, you know, if you, if you held a grudge about something like that, you'd be miserable if you <laughs> held a grudge for everything, little thing that went wrong, and so, I don't know, I was always one kind of didn't hold grudges and well I, I've told people and I didn't tell this for a while but you know after the race I was sitting there and I was sitting on the back straightaway and and I had my car running again I was had it in reverse and I saw him come off a of turn two there and he was rolling down the back straightaway and I had it time perfect and I thought to myself just like it was yesterday I said well that number three might be going to victory lane but this number five is going to be stuck in the side of it and I was going to back into him and t-bone him and I had it time perfect and when I popped the clutch and gave it the gas, reverse gear, it tore reverse gear out. The car moved about a half inch. And I'm like, and this kind of let, on the, let all the wind out of my sail right there, I guess. So I was like, well, gosh, I guess that wasn't meant to be either. So, But uh, probably a good thing looking back on it that the reverse gear tore out of it because we'd have probably had a heck of a fight with our crews and stuff. So <laughs> that probably wouldn't have been good for any of us. Bristol did derail planning their annual off-season hunting trip. But by the time Earnhardt and Labonte saw each other at the driver's meeting the next week at Darlington, they already had entered the bygones phase. It was the next week at the driver introduction, and uh, and I never will forget it. We were sitting there. It just so happens, you know, we kind of qualified close to each other at Darlington, and we went to the driver introduction, and everybody's kind of standing around for your time to get introduced. And, and I turned around, and he was standing there, and we kind of looked at each other, and John Andretti was standing there, and John looked at me and he looked at Dale and he said, I'm standing in the wrong place. <laughs> and they just kind of broke the ice, I guess. But everybody just kind of laughed about it. But, uh, you know, we went on and went on around that race. So. You know, I think I think about the sport today and where's that today and where it would be if he was still here. And it would have a completely different look if he was still here. So I think there's no doubt about it. You know, I think that DEI would be a powerhouse of a team. Uh, I think that the sport would be different because they had a lot of influence on NASCAR and some decisions that they made. Uh, and I think that it would definitely be different. Whether it be better or worse, I don't know. Uh, but it would be different, you know. And like I said, I think DEI would still be a powerhouse team with, you know, three or four cars and competitors, com com very competitive team, you know, which they were, you know. And, uh, and so that the sport's, it's definitely 
he definitely changed the face of the sport, I think, or, or, or where it's at today is definitely, I think, different than it would have been. A lot of things would be different today if, if Dale would have survived. Uh, I feel DEI would be still be strong there. I believe RCR would be strong right with Dale, and we had a lot of conversations about the future. And I knew what he was going to do. I knew his plans, and I know that uh, it didn't end like either one of us had ever dreamed of. If February 18, 2001 is NASCAR's JFK moment, when everyone remembers where they were as they learned of Earnhardt's death, then August 28, 1999, might be the antithesis. Given it's a much more uplifting occasion, recalling where you were the night Dale spun Terry has become a fan favorite. It's it's become kind of, the, the in some instances, the NASCAR Woodstock, where like 600,000 people were at <laughs> Woodstock, but 300 million say they were there. Right, you know? right. And the number of people who say they were at that 99 race and talk about it is just amazing. And what happened and the fact that 20 years later, people are still talking about it. But the thing that strikes me are all of the things that had to happen to make it happen. And I've seen a lot of different sports and a lot of – I haven't seen anything – to compare it to that, you had uh, a couple of legends, you know, guys who are now in the Hall of Fame, had won their share of championships, had won their share of races here, you know, between them, you know, 11 or 12 wins. So it wasn't like, you know, they hadn't had success. But I think just the the unbelievable emotion that happened and was sustained and lasted for especially living here around Bristol, it's not uncommon over the years uh, for people to say, I was sitting – and turn to, you know, even my time here at the at the Speedway, I spent 10 years working here after I left NASCAR. And we would talk to season ticket holders and get their memories of why they had season tickets at Bristol. Either in the beginning or before they finished, they would talk about 99. One of those, I was at Woodstock moment. You know, that, that was part of racing back then, not just at Bristol, but a lot of the tracks. You, you know, yeah, every now and then we get a little confrontation in the pits. I'm kind of old school guy. I kind of wish we had more of that in racing because I think it would bring a lot of the fans back that, you know, we need a big rivalry. We need a Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon type rivalry that I don't think they've had in, in a few years. The essence of, of what happened here that night almost 20 years ago is, is what drives fandom and stock car racing. People want feuds. They want rivalries. They want that personality. They want the personality. They want yeah. the rivalries. I'm, I, I don't think there's any doubt, and you've probably heard it 100 times, when Dale died, part of racing died. That's lacking today, and I'm still a huge fan, so don't take this the wrong way. It's come a little, become a little vanilla. If you had to rank all the races you've seen, where would uh, August 28th, 1999 rank? Oh, I think it's up there in the top. It was a good race, the whole race, and then, of course, the finish just, you know, it's, it's legendary. I don't know any other way to put it, but it's legendary. I think it's first or second in any poll that you would do. The only comparison would be the other Labonte <laughs> dust-up with, <laughs> right. with, with Dale Four Senior in 95. I think the energy of 99, you had all that drama. You had all these championship drivers. You had so many guys who had a shot to win. There was so much going on that night. Well, you know, yeah, it was an exciting night. It was a great race. Uh, Bristol was always one of my favorite racetracks for sure. You know, I, I love that track. You know, we were, you know, a contender in it. We were a factor in it. And, uh, you know, like I said, after the race, I said, well, it kind of makes for some exciting highlights. I never dreamed that it still be showing them 20 years later. Thanks for listening to the NASCAR NBC podcast. We hope you enjoyed this retrospective narrative episode. We've tried to do a few more of these editions this year. They're fun to do, but they do take a lot of time and help. So in this case, 
Thanks very much to Jerry Caldwell, Becky Cox, and Anthony Vestal at Bristol Motor Speedway for all their help arranging access and interviews with many people involved with that famous night at Bristol. As always, if you liked what you heard here, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever app you're listening to download or listen to us. Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play. We should be available wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to watch the broadcast this Saturday night of the Bristol Night Race on NBCSN. Pre-race begins at 6 p.m. Eastern. The green flag will drop shortly after 7.30 p.m. And post-race runs all the way through midnight. If you have any feedback for the NASCAR NBC podcast, send it to me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR NBC podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.